Okay, so we're going to continue with joyous effort to practice the Dharma. And, uh, you know, this text is so remarkable in really teaching practice in a very practical way. Yeah, the theory's there, but it's really practice-oriented and changing the mind-oriented. It's very good to just read one verse and think about it for however long you want to. Read another verse, meditate on it. Yeah, and it's it's very, very effective for changing the mind. And especially, I think, um, a good way to do it because a lot of what um, is taught in the book, it sounds wonderful, but we've never done it before you know, in in practical life. And some of it we can't even imagine doing. But what's really helpful in our meditation is to imagine doing some of these virtuous actions or imagine abstaining from some of these non-virtuous ones that Chantideva talks about. Because if you can't imagine doing it, then for sure you can't do it. Yeah, um, somebody was talking last week about, um, or a few weeks ago, about uh, golfers, uh, you know, imagining putting their thing, and it, it turned out as well as if they had actually practiced doing it. So uh, in your meditation, you know, when you read these different verses, then make up situations in your mind and imagine yourself acting according to the to the verse. So just don't keep the verse as some kind of general thing, like, you know, oh, I'm making offerings to the Buddha. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I made offerings to the Buddha. Next verse. Um, no, but sit there and imagine making offerings to the Buddha or imagine, um, you know, giving your body to, you know, to, to a tiger. Just... Imagine it, you know, kind of, and think, how could I have a happy mind doing this? What would a happy mind look like? Or imagine, if that's too difficult, because <laughs> it's hard to imagine, but, you know, that's what you start is with imagining. Um, and then, you know, one of the negative habits you have, you know, the, then just imagine a specific situation that would normally trigger it, and you are able to refrain from doing what you usually do. Yeah. And so imagine situations like that and doing them and having a happy mind doing them. And that really, uh, it gives you some practice and some confidence that, yeah, slowly I can go in that direction. And then you might actually surprise yourself and be able to stop that behavior or start the virtuous behavior, okay? But in your meditation, really imagine, because it has, it has a profound impact, you know? Because I don't know about you, but for me, when I imagine, I can't just um, say, okay, I'm imagining giving my my body to a tiger. So I imagine lying down and the tiger going yum and saying yum, yum, and then that's it. No, I have to like really think, 
okay, if I'm going to give my body, what state of mind am I going to be in? Yeah, and what is that kind of compassion? What would that feel like to have that kind of compassion for the baby cubs and the mama cub, you know, and treasuring others more than myself? What could that feel like? Okay, and if that's too difficult, well, how about something like donating a kidney to somebody? Yeah, in some ways it's easier imagining giving your whole body to the tiger because it's so abstract. But donating a kidney? Yeah, I'm going to go through the rest of this life with only one kidney. And I'm going to give it to Donnie? Well, at least I could do is give it to somebody I, I really respect. Okay, so make it easier for yourself. Give it to somebody that you really respect. Yeah, but but just, you know, what would that feel like? I'm going to go in the hospital. They're going to cut me open. They're going to take out a kidney, give it to somebody else. Yeah, that part's good. But then the rest of my life, I'm going to have only one kidney. And what's that going to be like? And I'm going to have a scar in my back and a, a surgical wound that's going to take time to to heal. Yeah. And what happens if something goes wrong? Yeah. Or what happens if I only have one good kidney and they take that one out? So, so you know, that's in one way more practical, but it makes you think, okay, what kind of state of mind? What is the kind of compassion I have to cultivate just to even imagine doing this, yeah, because it's so easy to say, but so hard even to imagine. Mm -hmm. But it gives us practice in cultivating compassion, and that's what we need. Okay, so let's visualize the merit field. And ourselves surrounded by all those sentient beings. So in the teachings about karma, it said that when we join a group for the purpose that the group was formed, and then we do that action, the purpose uh, for which the group was formed, then the karma we create becomes very powerful because we're doing it together with others. And so we're reinforcing each, each other's motivations and and actions and rejoicing in each other's actions. So at the beginning of every teaching, we cultivate bodhicitta. And cultivating the two bodhicittas is the whole reason that uh, this group was formed. 
So when we individually cultivate bodhicitta together with everybody else in the group as the motivation for the teaching, then that bodhicitta we we cultivate as a group becomes quite powerful. And you can feel it. It's much more powerful than us as one individual uh, cultivating bodhicitta because our attitude is joined together with that of everybody else in the group, and we are all going in the same direction with that. So take a minute and cultivate your bodhicitta intention. So when His Holiness gives teachings uh, in India to crowds of, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people, it's very powerful uh, just sitting there and saying, chanting the verses together because everybody's mind is going in the same direction and in a virtuous direction. And you can feel uh, being part of a group going in that direction, yeah? And so it gives you some experience yourself about the power of group karma, yeah? And then you think of yourself as one sentient being, because so often, you know, know, I will go to the lowest hells for the benefit of one sentient being, and I will go alone. Can't I have a friend with me when I go to the hell realm, you know, to benefit sentient beings? Do I have to go alone, you know? So it's it's really invigorating when you can imagine being with a group of people who have come together for that purpose. Yeah. And it's different than when you go to a conference on, um, you know, uh, increasing oil production or a, a conference on on saving the environment from oil production, you know? it's a, You get a different feeling from each group that you're with. And, uh, you know, can you think of being uh, fortunate to, to be part of a group that, is generating anything better than bodhicitta. Can you think of anything better? Yeah. So it it really um, gives us a sense of support and confidence. Okay. So last week, yeah, we were starting to talk about the, the four aspects of joyous effort. So the first one was aspiration and steadfastness, joy, and then 
relinquishment or rest. I don't think either of those is is a. I don't know how they what the term is, and how it got translated as relinquishment and as rest. Those two things seem different. Anyway, those are the four. And so we started talking about aspiration, the first one. And the the verses that we went through are kind of Shantideva is going over and over again about all the things we didn't do because we didn't have the aspiration to do them. Yeah, so we've had, you know, fantastic lifetimes before, even this lifetime, we have so many resources and opportunities. But I have not made offerings to the Buddhas. I have not given the pleasure of great festivals. I have not performed actions for the teachings. I have not fulfilled the wishes of the poor. I have not granted fearlessness to the frightened, and I have not given happiness to the weak. And then you think in in your life of all the opportunities you had to do those actions and how you just didn't take those opportunities, sometimes out of laziness, sometimes not out of not noticing the opportunities, sometimes out of stinginess or anger. Okay? And, And then he caps it off with, all I have given rise to is the agonize in the mother's womb and to suffering. Oh, you know, that that's that's the result of not having aspiration for virtue. Okay. So that's where we left off last week. And then verse 39 starts, both now and in previous lives, such deprivation has arisen because of my lack of aspiring for the Dharma. Who would ever reject this aspiring for the Dharma? Okay, so all those things that we didn't do and all the good results of doing those virtuous actions that could have been experienced, you know, um, both now and in previous lives doing those actions, uh, you know, we've been deprived of the aspiration to do them. We've de- been deprived of the results. And, uh, you know, why? Because we haven't had any aspiration for virtue. You know, most of our lives have been aspirations for how I can get what I want and how I can get everybody else to do what I want them to do and how I can retaliate uh, for the people who have hurt my feelings and, you know, how can I uh, get a big name and some fame for myself. The eight worldly concerns, our old friend, yeah, that's what we've aspired for. And so we've deprived ourselves of you know, fulfilling these or taking advantage of these opportunities that we've had to create virtue because we haven't been interested in it. Yeah? I mean, look at this life. Think of when you were a kid, okay? Just being a kid. Did you have much much aspiration to do things that were 
uh, kind to other living beings. Maybe a few aspirations here and there. But, you know, I thought it was kindness to collect all the snails in the garden that were eating my parents' plants because I wanted to make my parents happy. So I collected all the snails and I stepped on them and killed them. Yeah. So that was not a virtuous action. That was done under ignorance. Yeah. So, you know, many actions we we do like that. We think we're helping, but, but we're not. And then when you you were a teenager, yeah, how much did you, did you consider that other living beings had feelings? Not much. Yeah, as a teenager, we were totally self-absorbed. 108% self-absorbed. Yeah. So no chance then. What about in our young adult, you know, your 20s and 30s? How much virtue did we create then? Well, my early 20s were a disaster. I met the Dharma in my 20s, so that part was good. But even then... You know, attachment was so strong. Anger was so strong. Not like it's that much better now. Okay. So you think of of so many opportunities there were. And also opportunities that we didn't take advantage through ignorance. My whole time in Italy was an amazing opportunity to, you know. And I tried practicing chapter six because I would go back to my room and study it every evening. And then I would flunk the exam the next day as soon, you know. So it was, there was an opportunity, but I really wasn't capable of taking advantage. Or there were things where, you know, I, I did things for people that I didn't like because I thought, okay, I have to get over my anger and I have to, you know, cherish others more than myself. So, yeah, I'm going to give them this opportunity because <laughs> I'm going to, I'm trying to act like a bodhisattva. Um, but what was in my mind, I did the actions and then I was resentful. Yeah. I remember in particular, there was one of them that, anyway, so uh, somebody had given me a postcard of the previous life of Sinchab Sirkin Rinpoche, who's my root teacher, and it was taken in Spiti, I think not too long before he passed away, and he was riding on a yak. In Spitius in the Himalaya areas of, of India. And it was this beautiful picture of Rinpoche riding on a yak, 
going to villages in Spiti to share the Dharma with the people there. And I, it was just, yeah, one picture. And I thought it was so beautiful. I love that picture. And one of these <clears throat> looked, saw it and said, oh, that's such a nice picture. And then my mind went, he likes it. I'm so attached to it. I should give it up and cherish him more than myself. Okay. I'm going to gather all my strength and give him this picture because I cherish this jerk more than myself. (laughs) You know? And I gave him the picture I thought, okay, because you know a target would be proud of me. I gave him, I overcame my self-centeredness. But it was really painful. So you can see how many years later I'm still hanging on to it. <laughs> you know, not that I think of that picture every day and miss having that picture every day. You know, years go by and I don't think of it. Yeah. Then you think of it. Oh, he got it. I wonder if he even cherishes it. It's this wonderful picture. Maybe he probably just threw it away or, you know, who knows what he did. But I have the memory of that picture which is much more valuable, actually, than the picture, the memory of that picture, and the memory of how Rinpoche uh, would, you know, had that kind of compassion to go so much out of his way to ride on a yak to villages in the Himalaya to teach them the Dharma. Yeah, so that part I have. The picture, who knows what would have happened it, with it anyway if I had kept it, okay? But, you know, you see, okay, I did my best, but boy, my mind wasn't in the right space at that time. Yeah. I conquered my self-centeredness to give him the picture, and then I resented him I, thereafter, okay, to this day, because I've seen all the other things he's done to harm me and in the interim. I've probably made up a lot of those things. No, he did it, I'm sure. I know him very well. Yeah, hasn't, he hasn't changed. I've known him since 1970. Nineteen eighty hasn't changed a bit. Same yeah attitude. Except now he thinks he's a really big shot because he gets to do this and that and translate for this and that. <laughs> okay, so uh, you know. So once in a while I try and rejoice at his merit. 
and hope that he had a good motivation. (laughs) Him have a good motivation and other people agree with me about what he's like. And this, I'm not talking about Sam. Talking about another one, okay? But other people agree on my take on him. Okay. Of course, I could tell you who he is, and then you could go ask him what he thinks of me. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure he'll only praise me. Okay, so because of my lack of aspiring for the Dharma, you know, all this has come about. And then Shantideva says, who would ever reject this aspiring for the Dharma? You know, who would reject it? It's the best thing in the world you could ever do. Yeah, why would anybody not do it? Verse 40, the mighty one, the Buddha himself has said that aspiration is the root of every facet of virtue. And its root, the root of aspiration, is constant acquaintance with the ripening effects of actions. Okay? So aspiration is the root of every facet of virtue. So to create virtue... There has to be some aspiration to create virtue. Yeah? I mean, sometimes we do things that by the power of the holy object, we create some virtue. Yeah? But generally, there has to be some good intention, you know, for us to create virtue, for our actions to be virtuous. So it doesn't mean that We have to say, now I have the aspiration to create virtue, so I'm going to offer this to the Buddha. There you go, Buddha. Um, You know, it's not like you have to think like that, but there has to be some regard, some uh, appreciation for virtue that um, makes us want to do it. Yeah? Okay, and the root of that aspiration is acquaint- constant acquaintance. That's, that's not once every five years, but constant acquaintance with the ripening effects of actions. So a, a strong familiarity with the law of karma and its effects. Yeah, and that our actions create effects. And when we really think about that before we do certain actions, that will have a a strong effect on our mind. Yeah, if you're about ready to say something really snarky to somebody, yeah, and you think of the effect, the you know the ripening of that uh, action, and the three or four ways in which it ripens then you have much more impetus to not do it. Yeah, If you're feeling lazy about setting up your altar in the morning 
or lazy about going to meditation session, you know, because uh, that little toe keeps, you know, being such a pain in the tush. Um, <laughs> you know, if you don't have an aspiration for virtue, then, yeah, you're going to stay in bed and nurse your little toe and feel sorry for yourself. Um, yeah, but that aspiration, thinking what is the result of, uh, you know, going to morning meditation or evening puja or whatever it is, then it gives you more energy to do that action. Yeah. So we have to think about karma and the results of our actions, not just see our actions as staccato events, you know, like, okay, I did that. That, that, that's the action, just that five minutes or whatever it is. But to see, okay, what came before that motivated me to do that action? And what's going to be the effect of that action in the future? Okay? And so then you have a much broader perspective about how your life functions. So important to kind of cultivate that uh, that kind of awareness. Hmm? Okay, so f- then 41. Physical pain, mental unhappiness, all the various kinds of fear, as well as separation from what is desired, all arise from an unwholesome way of life. So... Isn't this interesting? We're on the fourth paramita, joyous effort. And what's he talking about again? Karma and its effects. Yeah? Which comes very early in the Lam Rim and is the root of ethical conduct. And here it is again. You know, we're a good way chunk, good chunk way, way through the book. And he's talking about it again. Interesting, huh? So don't ever think, uh, oh, I've mastered uh, karma and its effects. And uh, yeah, I, I, I got it. You know, causes bring results. Yeah, yeah, I knew that in second grade. No, we didn't, and we still don't appreciate it now, and that's why he's saying it again. Okay? So, if we don't aspire for virtue, and we just let gravity take its uh, its course, gravity being the tendency towards non-virtue due to ignorance, then what are the results going to be? Physical pain. Yeah. Why is your little toe hurting so much? Why is your back hurting? Why is your stomach hurting? Why is your head hurting? Yeah. Mental unhappiness. Why are you sulking? Why do you feel like nobody cares about you? Why do you feel like like everybody doesn't appreciate your efforts? Why do you feel ignored and unloved and unappreciated? Okay. All the various kinds of fear. Why are you afraid of giving a BBC? 
Why are you afraid of leading a meditation? Huh? Why are you afraid of, I don't know, working in the forest? Why are you afraid of driving a car? Why are you afraid of what people are going to think about you? Why are you afraid of people shaming you? Yeah, why? Yeah, yeah. And then the pain from the separation from what is desired. Yeah, why are we separated from the people that we care about? Why are we separated from our spiritual mentors and the opportunity to, to study the Dharma? Yeah, why are we, we separated from living in peaceful places? Why are we separated from having a political system that functions fairly? Yeah, why? Okay. So all arise from an unwholesome way of life. Okay. So yes, there are external conditions that occur in all these situations that I just went through. But why are we experiencing pain due to those conditions? Yeah, that is due to our unwholesome way of life. You know, just being totally self-preoccupied, not having uh, aspiration for virtue. Yeah. Or having an aspiration of virtue that is mixed in with getting our way and having a good reputation. Hmm? Okay. So Shantideva, in his usual style, is sucking it to us. Yeah? And uh, this is what I treasure so much about this book, is that there's no way my self-centered mind can wiggle its way out of his arguments. Yeah, I try. Yeah, yeah, physical pain, but, 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 there's genetic factors, there's the car that hit me, that's why I have physical pain, there's, you know, the tack that some jerk left on the floor that I stepped on, that's the cause of my little toe preventing me from going to morning meditation for the next five years because my little toe hurts so much. Yeah? We always attribute it to something outside. We never say the pain is coming because of my previous actions. Or even the pain is coming because of the way I'm thinking right now. Yeah. When we feel that other people don't appreciate us, that when we feel that we aren't acknowledged, is that a feeling or is that a thought? Which is it? Is it a feeling or a thought? It's a thought. It's not a feeling. This is a thought. Who's thinking that thought? Not somebody else. Who's thinking the thought, I 
nobody appreciates me. I'm ignored. <laughs> I have no value for these people. Who is thinking that thought? Is somebody else thinking it and putting it inside of you? Yeah. Do you have no control over your thoughts? It sure seems like that sometimes, doesn't it? And because we call the thought a feeling, feelings we think we have no control over. Yeah, so if I feel like you're ignoring me, that's a feeling. My feelings are my experience. They must be true. But feeling like people are ignoring me and don't appreciate me is not a feeling. It's a thought. Yeah. Maybe you feel hurt. Yeah. But the reason why you feel hurt is because of the way you're thinking. And this is difficult to own up to. Okay? Yeah, I feel mad because so-and-so is bossing me around and nobody here appreciates what I do and they're always ordering me around to do this and do that. I have more chores and, than anybody else and they get the good things on the rota list and I have the bad things and... Huh, oh, no, no, nobody appreciates me. I'm trying so hard. Oh. Yeah? That is a thought. We think it's a description of an objective situation. It's not because a bodhisattva would look at that situation and say, I have a wonderful opportunity to offer service to sentient beings. I have a wonderful opportunity to give up my pride, my arrogance. I have a wonderful opportunity to feel self-confident without needing other people's approval. Yeah, what a wonderful opportunity. Okay. Now, granted, we don't even, that's a hard way to think when we are totally immersed in, but they don't appreciate me and I'm neglected and everybody has it better than me. But, you know, do some analysis of the situation. Yeah, okay, there's an external component, but how we interpret that external component is our decision. Okay? So, think about what you've decided, how you've decided to interpret certain things. Yeah? And then, see... You know, where where's the aspiration for virtue and how I'm interpreting things? 
Am I aspiring for virtue with that way of thinking? Or am I aspiring for pity? Yeah. Some of us are very good at throwing personal pity parties. And then you think, well, at least I'm, I'm not living in, in uh, Ukraine right now. I have a very good experience. But then you think, yeah, yes, but when I was a child, I was told to eat all the food on my plate because children were starving in China. Why do I have to eat this food I don't like because children are starving in China? This is just guilt trip. You know, comparing me to children starving in kind. So now I'm comparing myself to somebody in Ukraine, and then I'm supposed to feel guilty because I'm not getting bombed, but they are. Like, I was supposed to feel guilty for not eating this food because, you know, they, they don't have food, but I do. And I don't appreciate my food. So I'm done with this guilt trip. Yeah, so I'm not comparing myself to people in Ukraine. Yeah? If we don't compare ourselves to people in Ukraine, how are we going to appreciate our situation? Yeah? I think of that, you know, because you watch the... You know, like right now, the um, that steel factory, uh, Azostrov or whatever it is, in in uh, Mariupol, they are bombing it nonstop, and you watch the videos, and it's just one missile after the other, and there's not just troops inside, but there's kids inside. And adults inside. And yes, they've taken out a hundred or two hundred in the last few days, but there's hundreds more inside. And they have, many of them haven't been outdoors to have a breath of fresh air or to see the sun in months because they've been under the, you know, in the bunkers. Now, how would I feel living in that situation? And the food and water are running short. How would I feel? You know, can I really say, oh, I'm not going to compare myself to the Ukrainians when I could have been born in that situation? And that situation may yet happen here. Who knows what's going to happen in the rest of our lives? We don't know. Last year, the Ukrainians never thought that they would be experiencing what they're experiencing now. Yeah. So maybe it does us some good to to think of the fortune and appreciate the good circumstances we have now. We don't have to feel guilty for having them but we can appreciate them and then use them to create, you know, use the situation to create virtue. 
and use the situation to imagine, you know, I'm living in that bunker at the bottom, you know, in the bottom of a steel factory that is the only remaining holdout in the whole town of Mariupol. And it's getting bombed day and night. And they said that yesterday the Russian soldiers even breached the, the perimeter. You know, how am I going to practice Dharma in that situation? Yeah, imagine being there. And how am I going to practice Dharma? Yeah, are you going to get up every morning and do your practice? Or are you going to look around, oh, there's a bunch of people here that uh, I don't know, they may judge me if I sit in meditation and if I'm saying prayers or something, it may make them uncomfortable. So I'm not going to do that. I I just will uh, live Dharma in my life and... uh, uh, I'm not going to do my practice because it'll it'll make them uncomfortable. Have we ever asked them if they'll be uncomfortable? Maybe they'll be inspired. But we're so too self-conscious to think of that. Okay? When there's limited water and food, you know, would I share it? The troops there are sharing what they have with the with the civilians. Would I share the food I have? Or would I keep it for myself? Yeah. Stuff it in my donka. Okay, so you know, just to imagine how would I practice Dharma in that kind of situation. And then, you know, you come back to this book, what do I need? How do I develop the way of thinking? Yeah, the kind of aspirations, the regard for virtue that I'm going to need to have to stay positive if I'm in an underground bunker for a couple of months and it's getting bombed. Mm -hmm. And you practice that in your meditation. You imagine that in your meditation. Okay. So, yeah, so this this is how you integrate the Dharma with your mind. Mm Hmm? It's not by memorizing lists. Memorizing lists gives you the opportunity to remember what to practice. But we have to practice it. Okay. So all of that arises from an unwholesome way of life. And 42, however, by committing wholesome actions which are motivated by aspiration in the mind. Wherever I go, I shall be presented with tokens of the fruit of that merit. Okay? Think about the Dalai Lama. Wherever he goes, not every place he goes, but most places he goes, 
Yeah. People have high regard for him and treat him well. Even in situations where people don't treat him well and call him the breaker of the motherland and the one who is destroying China and da-da-da-da-da, he doesn't hate those people. He doesn't hold resentment towards them. Yeah. Why? Why? Because he's practiced virtue. He's changed his, his mind in virtue. It's not that first people respect him and then he has a virtuous mind because of that. It's he had a virtuous mind and that's what makes people react that way towards him. Get, we got to get our cause and effect right here. Okay. Otherwise we think, yeah, when you treat me well, yes, then I'll have a very virtuous attitude and be very generous towards you. But when you don't treat me well, you know, yeah, cause and effect, you don't treat me well, I'm going to hate you and retaliate. Oh. No, it's coming from us, our actions. Okay. Then 43, yet by committing negative actions, though I may wish for happiness, wherever I go, I shall be completely overcome by weapons of pain caused by my wrongful life. Okay. Now, I know people don't like me talking about politics, but some politicians are extremely good examples of what Shanti Deva is talking about. So I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about ethical conduct. Okay? So yet by committing negative actions, yeah, think of some of the actions politicians create. They may be politicians in our country. They may be Putin in Russia or Lavrov, his defense minister in Russia, or who knows what, okay? So think, think about that person. Yet by committing negative actions, although he may wish for happiness, yeah, that politician, or, you know, we should make it gender equal. Think of Marjorie Taylor Greene. No living, no relation, no relation. Yeah? Although she or he, you know, whoever we're thinking of, may wish for happiness. And you, you, you know, think about as intensely as I want happiness, so does that person. You know, if it's easier for you to take Putin, you know, just think. Here's that guy, you know, all in the Kremlin, Kremlin, you know, surrounding himself with a fortress, physical fortress and a fortress of people. And, you know, what he wishes for is happiness. And his own, he has his own idea of what happiness is. You know, let's say, he he wants to be known in Russian history as the one who got the Russian Empire put together again, 
you know, just like Peter the Great and Catherine the Great and, you know, Stalin. He wants to, you know, he wants to, to be known as protecting the, the motherland and revered and have statues uh, made of him in the public square. And so he can die feeling like I've done something good in my life. Yeah, of course, you know, after he dies, he's not going to even see the statues or don't know what happens. But we'll just imagine, okay? So although he wishes for happiness wherever he goes, He'll be completely overcome by weapons of pain caused by his wrongful life. So, okay, maybe not everywhere, you know. The Chinese leader, Xi, appreciates him. You know, Modi is kind of neutral. Uh, you know, he, a lot of people in Russia think he's fighting a great war, you know, to denazify Ukraine. So some people think well of him, but that's because they don't know actually what's happening. They're hearing propaganda. Okay, so wherever he goes, he's going to be completely overcome by weapons of pain. You know, if he goes outside Russia, if he goes outside the Kremlin, he risks being assassinated. Yeah. Why does he have so many bodyguards? And so a lot of these people, they have have to have a lot of bodyguards because they know their life is in danger because of, you know, they don't say to themselves, it's because of my wrongful actions. They say it's because I'm so important and rich and other people are jealous. But it's actually due to to the way they're behaving. Yeah, when you lord your wealth over other people and don't want to share it, then you know, yeah, not people are not going to look at you kindly. Okay, so you take the example of Putin and think, okay, there's there's an example of cause and effect. Now, what about me? Okay. So yet by committing negative actions, and then you think of the negative actions you've committed. Although I may wish for happiness, and then you know how much you wish to be happy. Yeah, wherever I go, I will be completely overcome by weapons of pain caused by my wrongful life. Again, maybe not everywhere, but a lot of places, and maybe by the people I care about most. And what's brought that on? My my own actions. Hmm. One other thing is in the news is in in, uh, Alabama. Yeah, close to Georgia. Uh, Close to Florida. Uh, yeah, in Alabama, one uh, a couple has disappeared. Okay, the couple is uh, she is a 
a staff member at a prison in Alabama. Okay. He is one of the inmates there. He's in for capital murder. Uh, he already has a sentence of 75 years for previous murder. He's seen as somebody incredibly dangerous. She was a model employee, totally model employee. And uh, a few days ago, they both disappeared. And uh, she was taking him ostensibly to the, uh, to the courthouse for a mental health evaluation. And then she was going to go see the doctor because she wasn't feeling very well. And then uh, neither of them returned to the prison. They were reported missing. They investigated, and there was no appointment for him for a mental health evaluation at the courthouse. She never went to the doctor. The police car was parked in a parking lot about 10 miles away from the prison. And they were gone. And they had no, she was a model employee. So what's the story? Yeah. Did, did, was he kidnapping her? Or did she try to help him and, you know, and then he wound up threatening her? Was she, or was she you know, what's going on? Yeah. Were they having some kind of who knows what going on? Okay. So, of course, uh, they are on the most wanted list right now. Yeah, they've discovered that um, she sold her house uh, last month for about half the price it was worth. She turned in her retirement papers the uh, right before the, she left, although they haven't been pro um, processed. And some of the other guys on the tier where he was said that... He, he got some special favors like extra food or different things that were she provided and every and the whole prison staff is stumped is because she was she's worked there for like 20 years and she was this model employee and what in the world is going on nobody knows okay they do think now they have some video thing that uh, they left the police car at the shopping center and she had bought another car recently that had been parked at the shopping center the previous night. And there was some video of them getting into that car. But what really is going on? Okay. So, yeah, here's another Yet by committing negative actions, although they may wish for happiness, wherever they go, they will be completely overcome by weapons of pain caused by their wrongful life. He is considered extremely dangerous. She, as a, a prison staff member, 
left with, she was armed, she had a pistol, and they think that somehow they may, so they assume that he has the gun now too, and they may, may have a shotgun as well. So extremely dangerous, yeah. It's in the national news. Everybody's looking for them. They've told them, the Mexican and Canadian uh, immigration officials Yeah, what's the result of this going to be? Yeah. Because yeah. they're afraid that even if she was helping him voluntarily, she is still in great danger because one of his former girlfriends called into the police and said, said to her, leave as soon as you can, turn yourself in, don't. Be with this guy. Okay? So who knows? Maybe we did something like that in a previous life. Maybe he was. we were like him in a previous life. Maybe we were like her in a previous life. Maybe we were like Putin in a previous life. So you just think about karma, you know? And yeah, many times I am as out, out to lunch as those people are thinking that what I do is going to bring happiness and all it's going to do is bring misery to myself and others. So no wonder my little toe hurts, you know? If that is all I experience from these kind of horrible actions, listen, it's fine. My little toe can hurt as much as it wants, and I'm still going to morning meditation because I know what I need to do now in this life in order to have a better situation and be able to create the cause for a precious human life, to create the cause to be near my teachers, you know, in a next life. Yeah. So your little toe, your stomach, whatever it is, no big deal. Yeah. Having to give a BBC more than once a, a month. You know, I will guarantee that you will live through that. Yeah. So, you know, when we think about it, creating virtue is not that difficult, you know, and it can bring so many good results. So let's create that aspiration, yeah, and, and not just let the other mind, you know, the mind that thinks it's seeing the objectives, the reality of, you know, nobody appreciates me and nobody loves me and all this stuff. You know, let that mind go to sleep forever. <laughs> okay. Then verse 44. This is quite a beautiful verse. So we see verse 42 and 43 are related. First of all, 42 is talking about the results of wholesome actions. 43 is talking about the negative results of negative actions. And that applies in uh, 
future lifetimes, but also, you know, in this lifetime. 44 and 45 are also like that. 44, talking about the result in a future lifetime of wholesome actions. Uh, for, that's 44. 45, talking about the harmful, the painful results of unwholesome actions in a future life. So 44. As a result of virtue, I shall dwell in the spacious, fragrant, and cool heart of a lotus flower. Where's that lotus flower? It's in a pure land. It's in Sukhavati or another pure land. Yeah. Okay. It could be in a Sambhokakaya pure land. Yeah, it could be in Amitabha's or Akshobhya's pure land or some other Buddha's pure land. Okay. I shall dwell in the spacious, fragrant, cool heart of a lotus flower. Yeah. My so not in a bunker in a steel factory that's getting bombed. My radiance will be nourished by the food of the conqueror's sweet speech. Okay, so how are we being nourished? By the Dharma teachings. Yeah, the conqueror's sweet speech. And that's nourishment to our heart, to our mind. And that increases our radiance. So it could be our mental radiance, the physical radiance. It could be the vibe around us. Yeah. So you get to listen to lots of teachings sitting in a very comfortable, spacious, fragrant, cool heart of a lotus flower. Okay. My glorious form will spring from a lotus unfolded by the mighty one's light. And as a bodhisattva, I shall abide in the presence of the conquerors. So they say in Amitabha's pure land, when we talk about the nine, uh, the nine lotuses, yeah, if for somebody who gets born in Amitabha's pure land, so there's nine stages of lotuses. And depending on the uh, amount of virtue and the kind of virtue you have, uh, you're born in one of those lotuses. And uh, similarly, according to the virtue, um, those lotuses may open very quickly or they may take a really long time to open. Okay? So... Here, my glorious form. So you're not going to have this thing, okay? If you think you're going to look like, have this thing with you in Amitabha's pure land, forget it. Yeah, you're going to have a glorious form that, that is, you know, it's, yeah. Do you want a body like this for again and again and again? Yeah, that gets old and sick and dies. Uh, it was very interesting when you pointed out to me one of my old friends during a teaching, and I saw him on Zoom, and it's like, I had a hard time recognizing him. 
he's old. <laughs> uh, my image in was when he was, you know, 40, 44 and a half years younger. Yeah. And now it's old. And this morning I got an email from another old friend from that, that time. I looked at the picture. I'm going, that's him? He's old. And he looks like an old man. It's amazing. You know, imagine that. But me, you know, I'm still 21 and ready to go. Yeah, that face in the mirror doesn't, you know, it's still that 21-year-old face, and I have so much energy, just like I did before, and let's go for it, you know? But then I think, I wonder if they see a picture of me, what they're going to say. Yeah? Like my dad, after my mom died, and he called up his old girlfriend from before he met my mom and then met her again and said, she's an old lady. <laughs> he was <so> surprised. <laughs> yeah? But they won't think that about me because I'm 21. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> okay. I could show you a picture of when I was 21. Yeah? Yeah, hair down to here. Okay, uh, let's go on. Um, <laughs> okay, but so my radiance will be nourished by the food of the conqueror's sweet speech. Yeah, my glorious form will spring from a lotus unfolded by the mighty one's light. Yeah. So what is making, it, it says that the Buddha's light makes our lotus open, but I think it also has to do with our inner light that makes the lotus open. And what's the inner light? It's virtue, you know, and it's aspiration for more virtue. And as a bodhisattva, yeah, we're emerging from this as a bodhisattva, I shall abide in the presence of the conquerors. So... You know, you're born in a pure land. And it's like you're surrounded by Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And so people get along with each other. Yeah. Imagine being born in a place where people get along with each other, where you're surrounded by Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Yeah. They say in, in one of the, the prayers we read that Nagarjuna is in Amitabha's pure land. I want to go study with Nagarjuna. Yeah, I want to, yeah. And Chenrezi is in Amitabha's pure land and His Holiness. Yeah. I want to go there. I'm surrounded by Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Fantastic. Yeah. But then, if I go there, I have a responsibility to share whatever transformation occurs with all other living beings. So it's not just for me to do that. Okay. But imagine that, you know. So 
the more virtue you have, the quicker the lotus opens. Yeah, so you can see Amitabha and Chenrezig and Mahasdama Prada, however you say her name. Okay. Um, and I think Tara kind of comes from time to time. She's affiliated with that group as well. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, they say that some, there are some Shravakas and solitary realizer arhats who have been born in the Pure Land. Yeah. But it takes their lotuses a long time to, ro- to open. Yeah, even though they're already arhats. So that's why our teachers teach us, you know, generate bodhicitta. Generate bodhicitta. Then, you know, you learn about emptiness while you're generating bodhicitta, but generate bodhicitta first, you know. Unless you're a sharp faculty disciple, and then you can realize emptiness first, then generate bodhicitta, then go ahead. Okay, then verse 45, so 44, result of living a life of virtue. Verse 45, however, as a result of non-virtue, this is in our next life, my skin will be ripped off by the henchmen of Yama. Yama's the lord of death. In this feeble state, liquid copper melted by tremendous heat will be poured into my body. Pierced by flaming swords and daggers, my flesh will be cut into a hundred pieces, and I shall tumble upon the fiercely blazing iron ground. Okay. So, you know, you may believe in the hell realm, you may not believe in the hell realm, but the notion is that suffering will come as a result and very fierce suffering. Okay. And so, what do we do as a result of that? Therefore, I should aspire for virtue and with great respect acquaint myself with it. That's the conclusion of that that whole thing about uh, aspiration, the first aspect of joyous effort. Okay. Questions? Comments? Returning to your story of the the picture of your teacher, um, you know this comes up in my mind. The picture of the oh of your teacher. teacher yeah. Yes, you know, for instance, if I am in uh, angry about needing to vacuum, I can vacuum and try to tell myself why I don't need to be angry. You know, or I could go and sit in the meditation hall and really cultivate a positive motivation, and maybe never get around to vacuuming. So do you feel like you should have just waited to give the picture until you had a more positive state of mind? Or do you think you did, you know, the best thing you could have done in the situation? Well, I 
trying to get back in the head of who I was then. (laughs) I think at the time I did the best I could. I'm glad I gave him the picture. Um, Yeah, I'm glad. I actually don't resent him anymore. Too many better things to do in my life than resent somebody from something that happened how many decades ago. Um, And I meet him occasionally and talk to him, and, you know, it's okay. I don't think, do you have that picture? What did you do with that picture? Did you know how much I sacrificed to give you that picture? I don't say that, and I don't usually think that either, okay? But I gave him the picture, and that didn't mean that it stopped there, because I went back to my room, and I, you know, I know when I feel resentment, and I know when I have resentment, I need to practice and do something with my mind. So it it did stimulate me to practice more, yeah, because there's no way I wanted to walk around with resentment especially with something having to do with my root teacher, you know? I don't want to hold on to that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, let me just finish here. So regarding your question of uh, vacuuming, does that mean that uh, instead of vacuuming, you should go in the meditation hall and calm down and then maybe, you know, in five weeks when you feel better, <laughs> vacuum the floor. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> Ruth? Uh, thank you. I was, wanted to ask about the meditating on being in a bunker for two months. Mm-hmm. Um, and the purpose is to appreciate the life we have mm-hmm. versus... Yeah, to appreciate our f- present circumstances and to think, you know, because we don't know what will happen in our life. Yeah. And if we are a bodhisattva wannabe, we will experience difficulties. Yeah. And be in very difficult situations. So how could we practice... If we were in that bunker in Mariupol, how am I going to practice the Dharma? How will I keep a happy mind? How can I influence the other people around me and give them some joy instead of the kids, you know, being cooped up and the parents worrying about their kids and the troops worrying about and everybody worrying about getting killed? How can I give some joy that's coming from my heart to those people in that situation? And so how can I keep some uh, positive outlook without being attached to this life? It comes down to how can I not be attached to this life and this body, you know, in order to benefit the people that I'm with in that bunker? Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone online is asking, if it hurts to think about the suffering of others, to sympathize imagining their pain, is this a thought? 
For example, I weep watching the Ukrainian news and think that I'm feeling empathy or anger. Is this thoughts? Likewise, is feeling pity for others a thought too? Yeah, what that that you have to examine what's really going on in the mind. Um, sometimes when we see others suffer, I mean, we do feel compassion. We wish them to be free. Sometimes it invokes in us the notion that we could suffer like that. And that thought is terrifying to us. And that, you know, we think that we're having compassion for others, but actually we're overwhelmed by the fear that that might happen to us. And that is what is called personal distress. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when they talk about compassion burnout, what they're talking about is personal distress. Yeah. Like we we are adversely affected by other people's suffering. And the, what that means is that we have to develop it's a challenge for us. It's a uh, an opportunity for us to develop internal strength in the face of seeing suffering. Because we can see that if we crumble every time we see somebody suffering, we're not going to be able to benefit them. Yeah? Can you imagine if you're in a car accident and they take you to ER and the doctor looks at you and says, oh, I can't bear to see somebody suffering so much. I, this is horrible. What, who was the driver who killed them? And that the doctor gets so Im immersed in their own suffering from seeing you bleed to death they're not going to be able to help you. Yeah? So that doctor has to have some inner strength to, you know, to be able to bear seeing that. Yeah? And the thing is, with a bodhisattva, your inner strength is not just stuffing your adversity. Yeah? For the doctor, it might involve stuffing the adversity to the pain. With a bodhisattva, you don't stuff it. You know that there's a way to solve the situation, to stop creating the negative karma that caused it, but you also know it's going to take a really long time. And you are content to stay there and support all those sentient beings to help them overcome uh, their negative deeds that bring that bring on that pain. Okay, so bodhisattva, you know, for them, these situations grow the compassion and they grow the inner strength. Right? To, to be a bodhisattva, you have to have amazing inner strength. You can't be a wimp, you know, you can't start, just crumble when something happens that you don't like. Because if you crumble, how are you going to benefit anybody? 
then they're all going to have to take care of you because you're falling apart. Yeah. So this, this, yeah, that that's what we get into. And the next, the next aspect is steadfastness, sticking with something. To do that, you have to have that inner strength, that self confidence. So one way to help us build this kind of confidence is when we offer the mandala. Yeah, do the visualization of the inner mandala where your body, parts of your body, become all these beautiful things that you offer to the Buddha. Yeah? Your torso is Mount Meru, your intestines are the rings of the mountains, and so on. Yeah, I've described that before. And so you do that, and you practice. You know, your body is now taking that form, and you're offering that to the Buddha. And then that helps to build the the inner strength to offer the body, to realize that, the, you know, this body is nothing to be attached to. We know that up here, but when that tick bites, <laughs> you know, we're very attached to this body. 